Hallelujah. I am glad that we have the name of Jesus. Normally I would give a little opening talk, but I have a lot I want to say tonight. So I want to just take this time. We're going to go ahead and transition. The children and youth have service. Everyone else is in here. And while you guys are being seated, if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 13. As they're singing that song, Jesus, there's, there's so many things that you can talk about just in reference to the name. Um, I, I think a lot about how that scripture says that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And in my mind, I immediately think about all the leaders of the world or the supposed leaders of the world. That it doesn't matter whether they're a king, a president, um, they all too will bow to Jesus. And I, I like to think about that to remember that Jesus truly is the king of kings. Matthew chapter 13, we're going to open with two verses here and we're going to get right into this. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would go before us. Open our minds, O oh God, that we could hear your word. Open our hearts that the word may fall on good ground and bring forth fruit in due season. Help me, O oh God, to be but your mouthpiece, Lord, to speak your word to your people for this time. We give you all glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Hopefully those two verses are familiar, especially um, in the context of this series we're doing on the Lord of the Harvest. We ended last week's message talking specifically about this. And if you'll recall, we talked about the differences between the tares and the wheats, that the, the tares were the children of the devil and the wheat was the children of God. We discussed that the tares were not the enemy, that the devil was the enemy, and that our job as laborers within the field is to touch as many as we can. And actually, Pastor Powell mentioned something to me earlier. I've heard him say before, but it's really fitting here. The interesting thing to know about wheat and tares is that you cannot tell if it's going to be wheat or tare until it actually begins to grow from the ground. So now it makes a little more sense why in this parable Jesus is saying, don't go and try to remove the tares because you cannot tell the difference between the two yet. You need to wait. And I like that because we talked about at the very end of the message there that it's not our job to point to the tares or to the wheat, but that we are to keep our hand to the plow, so to speak. We're to work the field, and in due time, God would separate the tare and the wheat. So I want to kind of continue that as we get to the last Wednesday in September. It's really kind of hard to think about. The last Wednesday in September, almost at the end of 2023. Tonight, I'm just going to talk to you for a little bit on this simple topic. Lord of the harvest, the return of the king. Tonight is the last message in this series on the Lord of the Harvest. We are quickly wrapping up September, and before you know it, we will begin the holiday season. Time will be full of hay rides, harvest parties, shopping, shopping, and more shopping. 
My Amazon delivery driver is no doubt going to be very busy. We'll have turkey and stuffing and ham and all the good sweet treats. The words pumpkin spice will be plastered in every store in the metro. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the holidays. Specifically, I love Christmas. I love Christmas. But the other thing that happens this time of year is much of our discussions become centered on reflecting on the year and then briefly talking about what we hope to accomplish in the new year. But the sad reality is, is often our resolutions will not survive the month of January. For some of us, not even the first week of January. I'm guilty, not, not pointing fingers. But this is the sad reality of the human condition altogether. We spend far more time looking backwards, remembering our past failures and successes, than we do investing into our future. I would love to say that that only means the people who are not in church do this, but that's not the truth, because we all, just like everyone else, are people, and the church is often ensnared in the very same cycle. We can get very excited to plan for next year's theme or next year's big event. It's easy to do because we get the immediate satisfaction of happiness. But as the days roll by, that temporary emotion of happiness becomes replaced with a constant barrage of evil that fills every show, newspaper, magazine, and water cooler conversations. Now you may be asking, why in the world am I going on and on about this? And I'm glad that you asked. In Matthew chapter 13, we're going to look back here briefly. Matthew chapter 13, 36 through 43. This will be the same that we closed last with, but I, I'm going to repeat this verses because I want you to understand what it is that we're really talking about when we talk about the Lord the harvest. So Matthew 13, starting in 36, says, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteousness shine forth, as the Son in the kingdom of their Father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now, while I love to look at individual parables, like we did with this one, I love to look at individual topics. We have to remember that it takes all of Scripture to see the full picture. And as you read through the Gospels, you will see Jesus repeating the same stories and principles over and over and over. And you know, as a babe in Christ, I remember sometimes when you stay in a specific church long enough, the church I grew up in, you hear the same preacher preach enough times, 
you sometimes begin to hear the same stories or, or catchphrases or, or references mentioned. And, and, you know, when I was very young and immature, I hope I'm not that immature still, but when I was young and immature in the Lord, I would almost sigh inwardly. Yes, we know the story about whatever it is. But, you know, the longer that I am, am, am living for God, the more that I am having the opportunity to interact with people and to grow in discipleship with myself and with others— it has become very apparent to me why this happens. You see, Jesus himself did this very same thing because at the end of the day, here is what the Bible is all about. There's a heaven and there's a hell. There is a savior and there is an enemy. God wants one simple thing for you and I to be in relationship with him. Now, that's one simple thing, but it's encompassed by a whole bunch of stuff. Worship and holiness and discipleship and all of those things. But at the end of the day, what we are trying to accomplish is for us to be in relationship with God. We should not overcomplicate this. We do sermons on topics because we need different things at different times. But if ever someone stands and teaches you a lesson from two verses that flies in the face of all other scripture, they are wrong. The word of God will not contradict itself because there is too much at stake. The eternal resting of our soul is dependent on our response to all of scripture. Not just the parts we like, not just the parts that some people try to use to scare others, it is all of it. I want to turn to Isaiah 28, and you can follow me there if you want. I'm going to go kind of quickly through it because I, I just want to illustrate something to you. Because you'll see here in Isaiah chapter 28 as I read through some of this, this is the exact same thing that is repeated throughout all of the Old Testament. It's the same thing that Jesus has to correct time and again in the Gospels. And then it's the same thing that Paul has to talk about in almost all of his epistles. Listen to what it says here, Isaiah 28. And I'm reading this in the, uh, the, the, the New Living Version for simplicity. Same thing in the King James, if you want to read it. A little easier language here, because I want to illustrate a point. Woe to the city of Samaria, surrounded by her rich valley, Samaria, the pride and delight of the drunkards of Israel. Woe to her fading beauty, the crowning glory of a nation of men lying drunk in the streets. Verse 3, the proud city of Samaria, yes, the joy and delight of the drunkards of Israel will be hurled to, to the ground and trampled beneath the enemy's feet. Once glorious, her fading beauty surrounded by a fertile valley will suddenly be gone, greedily snatched away as an early fig is hungrily snatched and gobbled up. Then at last the Lord Almighty himself will be their crowning glory, the diadem of beauty to his people who are left. He will give a longing for justice to your judges and a great courage to your soldiers who are battling to the last before your gates. But Jerusalem is now led by drunks. Her priests and prophets reel and stagger, making stupid errors and mistakes. Wow, this is strong language. 
you have to understand what's happening right here. Samaria, a pagan city, a, a previous and future enemy of Israel. But as unfortunately was often the case, Israel in its, its unspiritual nature only looked at the immediate threat and decided anything we have to do for this immediate situation is okay, even if it means partnering ourselves with the same people who were previously trying to kill us. Even if we are partnering ourselves with people who worship false idols and offer children up as sacrifices. The Israel that said that they are the chosen of God, the separated, the special people, and yet here they are aligning themselves time and again with the enemy. So this is Isaiah, the prophet, talking to the people. He is trying to explain to them exactly what they are doing and what God thinks about what they're doing. But Jerusalem is now led, we're back at verse 7, but Jerusalem is now led by drunks. Her priests and prophets reel and stagger, making stupid errors and mistakes. Their tables are covered with vomit. Filth is everywhere. Who does Isaiah think he is? This is what is being referenced here. This is what Israel is, in a way, thinking about what Isaiah is telling them. It says, who does Isaiah think he is, the people say, to speak to us like this? Are we little children, barely old enough to talk? He tells us everything over and over again, a line at a time, in such simple words. But they won't listen. The only language they can understand is punishment. So God will punish them by sending them foreigners who speak strange gibberish. Only then will they listen to him. They could have rest in their own land if they would obey him. If they were kind and good, he told them that. But they would not listen to him. So the Lord will spell it out for them again, repeating it over and over in simple words whenever he can. Yet over this simple, straightforward message, they will stumble and fall and be broken, trapped and captured. Tell me this does not describe the world we live in right now. Tell me this isn't the same world that hears the simple messages of you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. Christ died for our sins. It's his righteousness that makes us clean. He loves us. He has mercy for us. And all he wants is for you to live in eternity with him. And yet that simple message that is said time and again, the world is all but tripping over itself to try to run as far as it can from this message. This simple message that from the beginning God has said time and time and time again. You see, it's easy to look back in the Old Testament and, and scoff at Israel for their mistakes. But guess what? The church still does this very same thing. All, and I'm talking church at large here. All too often, we allow ourselves to become so enwrapped in, in, in politics of today that we will go against the very principal nature of God because we think we have to have this person as our leader. Only then will God be able to do what he is going to do. Tell me how that's not any different than Israel trusting in an enemy that wanted to kill them because they were afraid of what might happen. You have struck, verse 15, you have struck... A bargain with death, you say, 
and sold yourselves to the devil in exchange for its protections against the Assyrians. They can never touch us, you say, for we are under the care of one who will deceive and fool them. But the Lord God says, see, I am placing a foundation stone in Zion, a firm, tested, precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. He who believes need never run away again. On one hand, we can say that the returning king will throw down all of the wickedness of this world, and that is an absolute truth. Jesus says very clearly that he will send his angels to gather up the tares and cast them into eternal fire and torment of hell. But before you clap, let me challenge you. You see, while God hates evil and he will no doubt bring judgment to all wickedness, his desire is not to cast your neighbor into hell. No, You see, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Man's wickedness brought sin and death, but before you and I were even a thought, Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the very foundations of the world. Before you rejoice at the idea of evil man being cast down, remember you too were once evil. I can't say this enough. The enemy is not your neighbor. We battle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. You see, as long as we look at our neighbor as the enemy, we can never be the true bride that Christ is trying to call us to be. God loved us so much that he saved you and me, and he loves your neighbor so much he wants to save them. Guess why he put them next to you? I think God wanted me to stop there for a minute. My iPad just completely stopped. Mm. Now listen, I like to think that I am all that in a bag of chips from time to time. I do. I wouldn't say it out loud, but I do. But I would be foolish if I ever believed that Christ left his throne in glory and hung on a tree only for me. We say God loved you individually, and that is true. We, uh, Merle Ewing used to sing the song, right? He stood out on the expanse of nothing, and he saw all that would be, but in all of that seeing and the separation that would occur, he saw me, and that is a beautiful song, and it's true. God did see you, but he also saw your neighbor. And he also saw those that would call themselves your enemy. He also saw those that lied and abused you. He also saw those who who did nothing but wickedness to the church. He saw a man named Saul who enjoyed persecuting the church. But God's love and grace would say, I know you hate the church, but I still love you. And he took that man and turned him into a powerful agent for God. Let that be our story, that we were once yet sinners living in wickedness, and yet God's love for us and for others brought us to a place that we could be that light for someone else. Luke 9, 51 through 56, 
And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. You might recognize this because we read this verse last week also. But as our previous passage, sometimes we need to say it again and again and again and again. You see, in 53, it says, And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives but to save them. I don't want at any point for you to think that I am foolish enough to not recognize that it's easy to say, love your neighbor, but harder sometimes in reality to live that out. I don't want you to think that I am so naive that I don't understand saying that the people who abused you or whatever, the the, the wrong that they did also is loved by God. I don't want you to think that, that I don't understand how hard that is to reconcile in our own minds. Because there are certainly people in my life that I look back on and I have so much animosity toward. And yet somehow I have to remind myself that God loved them just as much as he loved me. And I don't ever want this to sound like it's, it's me bullying you into feeling guilty. Because I understand how lonely it can be at times to be in a place where you are constantly being spoken against. And you come here And I'm telling you that you need to be a light in the place that keeps speaking against you. I do understand. But Jesus said that he did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Okay. All right. Now for some great news. Kind of move a little bit here. As much as Jesus expects you to fight for the lost, you also need to remember this. God is fighting for you. As much as you should feel conviction, if you will, the calling to reach out for the lost, to fight for them, you also should know that God is fighting for you. I am simply asking each of us to look beyond the short-term New Year's resolutions and look with eternity's eyes instead. I know this world is messed up. I recognize there are people suffering in every corner of the globe. There's no denying the wickedness is waxing worse and worse. But before you get overwhelmed and want to quit, listen to this. 2 Peter chapter 3. The second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust, 
and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continued as they were from the beginning of creation. Pause right here for just a moment. Let me, let me tell you what they're saying here. When it says, since the fathers fell asleep, the word that's used there means since they have died. What they are saying is, is they are challenging the disciples here. They're saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're talking about Jesus coming back and, and setting up this kingdom and all this kind of stuff. But we've been hearing the same story from the beginning. Our father's father's fathers have said all of this. And yet, look, it's still the same as it was before. That's not changed today. The terminology might be different. But when we go out in the world and we start saying things like Christ is going to return, there are plenty out there who say, yeah, you, you nutjobs have been saying that forever. Nothing's changed. Look, it's all just the same. It's the same spirit, right? Listen to this. For this, this verse 5, for this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, were by the world that, was, or that then was being overflowed with water, perish. Pause. He describes two things here. First, the creation of everything by God. Second, that the flood was a direct response to man's wickedness. Why does that matter? Number one, if you can refute, if you cannot believe in creation, by default you don't believe in a creator. With no creator means there's no one to define your purpose other than yourself. Number two, if you can deny that there was a flood in response to man's wickedness, you can also then not believe that there is consequence for your sin. So it's no mystery that throughout all of man's time, all of man's history, that willingly man has chosen to do everything it can to discount, to discredit the creation of the world by God. Whether that was done through all of the different mythologies and false religions. Or whether it was done through the false religion of evolution. The result is the same. Deny that God was the creator, that I determined my own purpose. Deny that God flooded the earth in response to its wickedness, and then I can feel okay doing whatever I want because there is no consequence for sin. So this world that we see doing wickedness in truth is many times just trying to assuage their own guilt. They, no one wants to feel guilty. So you have two choices. You hear God's call of conviction and change, or you change the narrative to make yourself believe a lie so you no longer feel guilty. But the heavens and the earth, now verse 7, but the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So here's the part that hasn't happened. If I don't believe in a creator and I don't believe in a consequence, then I can also ignore this part here that says one day God is going to burn up the wickedness of man with fire. But if I believe the first two, that God created man, and if I believe that God punished the wickedness of man in, in, in the flood, I must also believe that it is foretold that God is going to burn up the wickedness of man in fire. Therefore, my response to these things is significant. But listen to this. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, 
that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. And just side note, I don't personally believe that this individual verse was trying to give you a secret code to, to map out the timing of everything. What he's saying here is that you and I sit in such a linear time, we can only see in increments, and yet God sits outside of time. So for you and I, we see like, man, why is God waiting so long? Like, I've been on this earth 40 years. But in God's eyes, like, that's, that's a blip. I've been around since eternity. But this in verse 9, the Lord is, the Lord is not slack. Concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, just remember this phrase for a moment, because I'm going to come back to it here in a, a further verse. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. What that means is that God did not forget that he gave you a promise. I understand that time has, has gone by. I understand that things have happened between the time that he gave you the promise and it hasn't happened yet. But listen, don't be deceived. God did not forget the promises he made. God will not lie. He is not a man that he should lie. He cannot lie. It's against his very nature, okay? His long suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Verse 11. Seeing then the, that all these things should be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversations and godliness? Looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we according to his promise look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness." Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. This is, this is the whole message of what I'm, what, what I'm saying, what's been repeated time and again. I know... God speaking, I know that you're struggling. I understand that there is wickedness abounding on the earth. I know that you are trying to patiently wait for all of the promises that I have said that come, will come to pass. But you need to know this, that my long-suffering is salvation. Not salvation to you, but salvation for all of the tares that haven't accepted him yet. We sometimes selfishly, and I understand, trust me, we sometimes selfishly say, okay, God, I, it's been too much at this point. Let's go. It, let's, let's get the rapture on right now. Let's be done. But God is trying to remind us that, hey, just like while you were yet a sinner, I loved you, just like before the foundations, I was slain for you, I love those other people too. So my long suffering is their salvation. Don't be distraught. Hold on to your faith. Be patient. There's more people to bring into the harvest. Now maybe, maybe, well, you've heard all of this before. But maybe you're saying, yeah, 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 I get all of that. But how am I going to find the strength or courage 
to continue when my situation feels so hopeless? How can I trust God when I hurt so bad? Well, it's at this point that I'm going to tell you you need to find a dance like David. You see, David stood in the middle of utter destruction. He was on the run from Saul. He had his men with him. They had left to go in battle, and the enemy came in behind them and had killed or or kidnapped, if you will, all of the women and children. And now David, this great leader that these people are following, come back and find that their whole lives in just a moment have vanished. Their wives, their children, their livestock, everything that they had been working for in a moment was gone. And you better believe that they probably were very furious with David. Whether or not you can say it was or wasn't his fault doesn't matter. When you have a hurt and a loss on that magnitude, you will blame anybody close enough to you. So David, no doubt, feels the weight of this. I can't can't begin to really understand what that's like, but let me share a real short story with you. When, When I deployed to Iraq in 2008, I was in a slightly different position than previous times because now I was the boss in the sense of the medics. I had medics underneath me that I was responsible for training and preparing to go to war. And I remembered when I was trained back in 2003 to go that the stuff that I learned was pretty much useless. We were moving moving through the woods, digging foxholes in the dirt. I don't know if you've been to Afghanistan or Iraq. There's not a ton of wooded area. We did not dig any foxholes in either of those two countries. I know that when I went on my first deployment and worked with the team clearing landmines, I was woefully unprepared for what I would experience. Not just on the medical front, but on the emotional front. It's not normal for people to see that kind of stuff over and over and over and over again. So now, fast forward. Here it is, 2008. We're about to deploy. This is my third time around the block. I now have people under me. I remember what I felt like after the first time around. So I wanted to do everything I could to make sure that the people that were with me were ready. So I did all the things that I thought to do, you know, made all the extra arrangements for training and all that kind of stuff. And we deploy and, it, 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 you know, it was fine. Well, several years after, I get out of the military, went through all of my struggles with PTSD, all of that kind of stuff. I ended up reconnecting with one of the medics that was under me. And through our talks, I kind of come to learn that he himself had been struggling significantly with PTSD. And he had become, you know, a pretty bad alcoholic and was making lots of bad decisions. You know, in that moment, I was no longer his leader, but I still felt responsible. I wasn't the one who made him make those decisions, but I still carried that weight. I can't begin to imagine what David must have felt like. It wasn't one person's life. It was families. So I understand David likely felt beyond emotionally distraught. But what does the scripture tell us? David encouraged himself 
in the Lord. What does that mean, though? What does that mean, David encouraged himself in the Lord? Does that mean that he no longer felt sad? Does that mean by saying a couple words, he no longer felt that hurt and carried that, that, that with him? Of course not. Of course not. But what it meant was this. On that hillside, when David was writing psalms for the Lord, he wasn't sing, singing some abstract song because it sounded good. He was recalling the goodness of God. He was informing his spirit of who God is and what he said he is and will be. He was reminding him himself that even though I don't understand, God is eternal. Where can I go that the Lord will not be? Whether I make my, head, my bed in hell or whether I descend to the highest heights, the Lord is with me. God did not need David to say that out loud for his own ego. No, David needed to say that for his own soul to remember who God was in his life. And now in this time of likely his greatest distress, even though he doesn't understand in the spiritual sense, he can look back spiritually and say, God, I don't get it, but I'm going to trust. You told me on the hillside you were going to be with me. It hurts, but I'm going to believe anyway. Well, Revelation 21 and 4 says, And God shall wipe away, all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Church, be encouraged, 2 Corinthians 5 and 1, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and a house not made with hands that is eternal in the heavens Luke 20, neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. Church, what I'm trying to get you to see is the emotions you feel now are temporary, but the promises of God are eternal. Encourage yourself in the knowledge that God is from everlasting to everlasting, and if he gave you a word, it will come to pass, Matthew 5, 12, rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 16. Let me kind of say this and we'll, we'll start to bring this to a close here. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Pause for a moment. How many of you have heard this before? Probably many times. We'll go through this, and it's, it's powerful, but listen, I need you to really, really understand verse 9. As it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, so no matter what you've heard, being described of how good heaven is or how good God is, you cannot yet fully comprehend just how good it is. We take joy in knowing that great things await for us, but I am telling you, you cannot even yet understand in its completeness just how good God is. And that is a good thing. Because no matter how highly I think of God in my head, he is so much higher. 
no matter how much I encourage myself of how good it's going to be, I know that I will be gladly surprised when it's even better than I thought that it could be. This is why 1 John 3 and 2 says, For we know not yet what we shall be, but we know that when we see him, we'll know because we will be like him. What that means is this. Yes, we have the verses that say we will take off this corruptible and put on incorruption. Yes, we have the verses that say we will no longer cry, we will no longer die, and none of that stuff. And yet the writer here is saying, even knowing all of that, you still don't fully understand just what God has in store for his bride. Verse 10, but God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit, for the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. What this passage is telling us is that when we look at the world, the world who has not received the mind of Christ, we cannot expect them in their flesh to truly understand the goodness of God. Because the carnal mind cannot truly wrap its brain around God's mercy, around his power, around his holiness. They can hear the words, but they don't truly understand. I'll prove it to you. The disciples walked with Jesus through all of his ministry. They saw Jesus do all of these different things. But when you read the last chapter of Luke, which by the way... If you want to understand the beginning of Acts chapter 1, you need to go back to Luke chapter 24. Acts is a continuation of the book of Luke, written by the same person. In Luke 24, it says Jesus had, had at this point been resurrected, and he had been talking to his disciples, and he brings them over. And he says that he opened their understanding concerning the scriptures. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean he opened their understanding? I mean, they were with him during all of his parables. They were with him when all the miracles took place. They were with him when he taught on the Sermon of the Mount. So why all of a sudden we have this? Because in our flesh, we cannot really understand the holiness of God because the flesh is at enmity with the Spirit. But now, through Christ overthrowing of the power of sin, he was able to impart back to man the spirit of God. And it's in that spirit that we no longer just understand, or at least mostly understand the nature of God on a carnal level. But spiritually we can see that there are things that go beyond the here and now. 
Let's all stand. We need to have a little bit of mercy with those who we're trying to reach. Because they are of flesh, they understand by flesh. We are of the Spirit, so we should understand by the Spirit. And last thing I'll say is this. When you're encouraging yourself in the Lord, when you are facing the hardest of times, go back. Remember the things that God has done. I'm going I'm I'm to share a real quick story. Actually, I actually have two really short stories, but I want to illustrate something. Sister Nancy, do you mind if, and I'm kind of putting her on the spot, I apologize. Do you mind if I share real briefly the conversation you and I had in the foyer one night about your desire for what you felt God calling you to do? So several months ago, Sister Nancy and I were here waiting to get her kiddos. They were having youth. And I had come out of my office and I was about to leave. And Sister Nancy was standing out in the foyer waiting. And as we began to talk, I could see the hurt on her face. I could tell there was something bothering her. And so we just began to talk. And she explained to me that she's like, I, I feel God has something more for me. I feel that, 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 that I should be doing something more. And through this conversation, I don't remember which part was said first, but the synopsis of, synopsis of it is, is that I told her that God is going to honor those things. She felt that one of the ways that, she, that God wanted to use her was in prayer. This is before anyone approached her about being the prayer minister here. This is before any of those things had formally taken place. But I felt comfortable enough out there to say, God will answer your prayers. Why? Not because I'm special, but because the word says, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And Sister Nancy held on to that. It wasn't the next day. It wasn't the next week. It wasn't two weeks later that it happened. But despite that, she held on to it. Now you see Sister Nancy every Sunday standing up here, leading us in prayer. Daniel Spurgeon, when he first came to this church, I prayed for him right back there on that left-hand side. I meant to tell him this the other day. I had never met Daniel before. I've never talked to Daniel before. I knew nothing about him. And I went and I prayed for him, and I felt very strongly God wanting him to know that he has heard his cry to move into a deeper place with God. That for some time he had been playing it safe, maybe not pushing himself as far as he could. I prayed that prayer when he first moved here. And I don't even know, it's been years now. And now Daniel's not only involved in the ministries you see here, but Daniel's chomping at the bit, hey, I want to be more involved in teaching Bible studies. Hey, I want to be doing this. What I'm trying to say is this. God knows where you are. Just because you haven't seen your prayers answered today doesn't mean they won't be answered tomorrow. And even if they're not, he's not a liar. He is not slack concerning his promises. If he said it, it's going to happen. Lord, I pray, help us to encourage ourselves in this, that you are the king of kings, that you are the alpha and the omega, that you are from everlasting to everlasting. You are the firm foundation upon which we stand. That though heaven and earth shall pass away, your word shall not pass away. 
Lord, we trust that you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that you are the Prince of peace, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. There is none beside you, none before you. There shall be none after you. We trust in your sovereignty. We trust in your power and in your grace. We trust in your word and in your promises that though this world continues to grow cold and dark, that you have called us to be a light in the darkness. Lord, help us to take courage in knowing that you see us where we are, that you are the lamp before our feet and the light unto our pathway, that you are the author and the finisher of our faith. Help us, O oh God, to stick with one another, that iron would sharpen iron, that we would uplift one another, that we would be in unity to see the vision come to pass. We give you glory in all things. We praise your name, the name that at every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that you are Lord. In that name, the name of Jesus. Amen.